Rising. We have a great show for you today. I just had a fantastic interview with Senator Rand Paul. Got up early to uh, get that one checked off. That makes one of us. List. <laughs> well, we're sorry not to have you, Brianna, but uh, so glad uh, you're here for the rest of the show. We got Trump news, I think, to deal with today. Yeah, let's, that? let's get right into it. Federal prosecutors have obtained audio recordings in which former President Donald Trump acknowledges he retained classified materials about potential U.S. military action in Iran after leaving the White House. This, according to new reporting from CNN. In the recording taken during a 2021 meeting with two ghostwriters for Mark Meadows' then-in-the-works autobiography, Trump suggests he would like to share the classified information but is aware of limitations on his ability to declassify records post-presidency. Meadows' finished autobiography contains an accounting of what appears to be the same meeting, quote, Trump recalls a four-page report typed up by Trump's former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley, himself. It contained the general's own plan to attack Iran, deploying massive numbers of troops, something he urged President Trump to do more than once during his presidency. Trump did not produce the report in question, CNN was told. Um, <laughs> this is so frustrating. So a top military advisor to President Trump was repeatedly urging him throughout his presidency to start World War III with Iran. Mm -hmm. So maybe, perhaps I'm naive, Brianna. Mm -hmm. That, I think, would be the headline for me, mm -hmm. that the military-industrial com uh, complex, the deep state, mm -hmm. wants war with Iran. But CNN thinks the interesting thing about this is that, aha, we got Trump. <laughs> he has that document, and he knows he was not supposed to have it. Ha! Yeah, look, I mean, obviously, <laughs> what? For, for Democrats who are hoping that one of these uh, Trump prosecutions actually sticks and prevents him from running for president, that is what they have an appetite for, right? And the documents case was perceived to be a much stronger case than the uh, Stormy Daniels case out of New York. So to the extent that there is information that shows that he knew at the time that he wasn't supposed to be in possession of documents and also declined to acquiesce to the, the document request once the government started asking, uh, asking for them back. That is useful evidence for them, um, especially since there was the whole rigmarole about Trump saying that he thought he could declassify every, everything by just saying it was declassified. Mm -hmm. This suggests that he knew that that wasn't the case, or he, did, he believed internally that that wasn't the case. However, I very much take your point that the headline does at least one of the headlines. <laughs> a we really headline. buried the lead there. <laughs> Trump repeatedly urged to attack Iran by Mark Milley. By the way, is that uh, general who was briefly became a kind of resistance lib hero because uh, there was that hearing where he defended the teaching of critical race theory or something like that. Oh, interesting. And uh, and uh, so then conservatives really attacked him for you know for weakening our military with. <laughs> Trans stuff, you know, that kind of, but, but then he was also, you know, held up as a hero by liberal Democrats mm -hmm. for, you know, pushing back on that kind Doesn't of stuff. Doesn't take much. Yeah, yeah. what a hero, um, uh, you know, urging a, a if, again, if he actually repeatedly urged it, I, I guess maybe it's the military's job to drop plans in a hypothetical battle scenario, sure. but uh, that's different than, than yeah. urging. And, and, and he wouldn't be the, now, he wouldn't be the only person in the Trump administration to urge that. John Bolton, who Trump chose mm -hmm. to be a top uh, military and diplomatic advisor, has said we should bomb Iran and I think various other places, uh, would, again, speaking to the incoherence at times of the Trump 
foreign policy, but man, I, I don't. I think it's so much less significant yeah, that Trump had the document and he yeah. knows he had the document. And, and again, I want to see these documents. Let's see these documents. Yeah, so it's Why is it being held secret from us? That we know of these audio recordings and people who have apparently listened to the audio recordings have been interviewed for the sake of these articles by various reporters, but we haven't heard the audio recording itself yet. Uh, but I do think your, your framing is spot on, especially when you think of this in the electoral context that, of course, we're now in in the scope of 2024. I think Democrats are hoping that this results in some kind of um, criminal pr conviction that precludes Trump from running for office. It's not clear that that would be the case either way. But it, just in pure political terms, it's not really obvious to me that anyone who likes Trump or would be considering support, considering supporting Trump cares about this, and they specifically don't care about it more than they care about the idea that Trump is a president who they believe they can latch their anti-war hopes and dreams to, that he is the one that has been branding himself in this way and has demonstrated a kind of consistency, at least, on the not starting mm. new wars front, that others, even in, in the Republican Party who are trying to pick up the anti-war ma mantle, haven't been able to do successfully. Con contrast this to Ron DeSantis, who's gone back and forth in Ukraine, who has had some flip-ups with the whole um, media cycle around it's a territorial dispute and then backtracking and then, you know. Donald Trump. I agree. If anything, it doesn't come as naturally to DeSantis as it did to Trump when when Trump would say, you know, why are we wasting money and time doing this? This is a bad. You know, Iraq is a horrible idea. The, all of Afghanistan. Um, I, I think it is a little bit more force for DeSantis. Yeah, and you hear him, you know, making reference to his own uh, time in service and mm -hmm. kind of using the shield of the, the the rhetoric around the troops, but it starts to feel very regressive. It feels sure. very, uh, from a very free, free, And a lot of the Trump troops don't support. Style I, I was just uh, actually recalling that because I interviewed Senator Rand Paul, uh, his father, uh, Representative Ron Paul, mm -hmm. uh, a you know, beloved kind of libertarian icon for economic reasons, but also for foreign policy reasons. He was really the first person he, when he ran for president in uh, 2008, um, to to bring in the Republican fold, actually, really before Donald Trump was a political factor in the Republican Party, speaking a stridently anti-interventionist foreign policy um, at a time where the elites in the Republican Party, the other candidates, had no were totally neocon consensus, had no idea that the base wanted non-interventionism, and he would say things, and and the other candidates like John McCain and Rudy Giuliani would you know say he's unpatriotic, say mm -hmm. he's rooting for our enemies, and he would point out that well then why do more military service members support me over all of you? Well they agree with me because yeah. the the folks that we've sent overseas to wage our battles, I mean they they know what their lives are worth. They know that yeah. that what they have seen that so many times it was a huge, colossal mistake that got people killed. Yeah. Well, so what do you make about the implications of this for Trump's uh, documents case? There has been an effort, and I think a reasonable effort, to close the gap between Donald Trump, Joe Biden, Mike mm -hmm. Pence. Basically, everyone in government, it seems, has taken classified documents, and conservatives have been making that case. D Democrats, liberals, have been making the counterargument that, one, Trump can be distinguished from the others because he did not cooperate when uh, he was asked to return the documents. And now this seems to add another little wrinkle for Trump's argument, saying that he knew he had documents that he wasn't supposed to have in his possession and still decided to hold on to them. Do you think that makes a difference? I mean, sure. If you, if you want to convince me, I don't even need convincing. I believe it. Is Trump, given the range of political figures, was he particularly incautious 
with documents and what he kept relative to other political in, figures. In yes, I'm, you don't need to. You don't need to persuade me of that. That sounds perfectly plausible. It's his entire approach to everything he does. Do I think it is particularly significant? In cautious, though, Robbie. No. There's a difference. I think that what people are saying is that it was purposeful, mm -hmm. and you know. Uh, De de deceitful, yeah. as opposed Fine. to accidental or in in uh, incautious. All right, I, I don't have any interest in defending <laughs> Donald Trump in general, <laughs> including on this. I think, uh, given the range of crimes being committed by people in government, including in Trump's own government, <laughs> including what this document might point sure. to in terms of what his top foreign policy advisors wanted him to do, uh, I see a lot. Um, I see bigger scandals, but 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 sure, Trump. Trump handled, he handled, the, he filed those papers wrong. He sure did. Boy, did he. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Let us know what you think. We're rising for you right after this. Well, we've got some big news from Capitol Hill. Last night, the House passed President Biden and Speaker Kevin McCarthy's $4 trillion expansion of the debt ceiling, clearing the chamber in a bipartisan 314 to 117 vote. The bill will head to the Senate next, where leadership is hoping to push it through to a floor vote before the country is expected to default on June 5th. Now, the path to 51 votes, however, won't be an easy one because some senators are already voicing their opposition. Senator Rand Paul, Republican of Kentucky, says he will force a vote on an amendment that would cut federal spending by 5% in each of the next two years by reducing various programs. And then some people wonder what those should be. But Senator Paul is here with us right now to discuss his plan and how he feels about the current debt agreement. Thank you so much for coming back to Rising, Senator. Glad to be with you. So what do you think of the deal that was reached, and what, would you, what do you hope to vote on that would be different? Well, I don't think there's anything conservative about the Biden-McCarthy plan. Uh, to add unlimited spending or unlimited borrowing for the next two years, go all the way through the next election, basically is an abdication of any kind of responsibility, any kind of fiscal responsibility. There'll be no discussion over any kind of restraint in spending after we allow this, the borrowing to go up for two years. You're right that some people have estimated it will be as much as $4 trillion in new debt. So for someone to say, oh, well, this is the conservative, we, this is historic conservative deal that adds $4 trillion in debt over two years, that's nonsense. And so I don't think anybody really believes that. And the vast majority of the American people would like something more. I know people in my state, we still believe in a balanced budget. We thought that's what conservatives were for. And the constitutional amendment that we have voted on in the past actually requires a balance in five years. So I've always taken five years as sort of the believable window of time in which you should try to balance the budget. Anything that's 10 years or longer um, becomes less believable because you don't know what people will do five or 10 years from now and whether they'll adhere to what you've asked them to do. So what I've done is put forward the spending caps necessary to balance in five years. And then we also do allow the debt ceiling to go up because it takes five years to balance. There'll still be some more accumulation of debt but we only let the debt go up 500 billion. Now that used to be a lot of money, even in Washington, but 500 billion anymore lasts six months. Who knows, it goes pretty quickly. But what that would do is at the end of six months, we'd be forced to go through this again. Some people say, oh, this is a terrible thing to go through for the country. I, I think the opposite. 
I think this discussion over the, the lack of money, the trillion dollar annual deficits and the mismatch between revenue and spending is something we should be discussing all of the time. So if we were forced to come back here in six months and have the same discussion, I think it'd be the best thing we could possibly do for the country. Um, unfortunately, I don't think we'll have the votes. Um, no Democrat will vote to cut spending if it's a real cut in spending like mine. And of the Republicans, only about half of them. Uh, this is kind of what you saw in the House as well. About a third of the Republicans uh, were conservative enough to say this is a crazy, no good deal and it won't help uh, balance the budget. Um, but two thirds of Republicans went along with it. And you know, we'll be about a half to two thirds here who will go along with this as well. If, uh, if Congress voted to decide we got to cut spending by 5% you know, in, in the you know, next two years, um, everything is on the table. It, you know, the problem, it seems to me, is that, as you point out, Democrats don't really fundamentally want to cut spending at all. Republicans may say when they have no power that they want to cut spending, and then when they actually have the opportunity to do it, they'll say, well, Medicare, Social Security are off the table, and then also the military is off the table. And then it's like, well, what's left? There's no way we can significantly cut sp spending if, if everybody's you know, sacred cows are not going to be, uh, not going to be dealt with. Uh, you're exactly right. So when you look at the budget, two-thirds of spending is mandatory. This is Medicare, food stamps, a lot of different welfare programs, but they're never looked at. And so two-thirds of the budget, if that's off the table, now we're saying, oh, we're going to balance the budget by only looking at a third. The problem is, is of the remaining third, half of that, so a sixth of the budget is military. They took that off the table. But it's worse than that. So mandatory spending two-thirds is going to go up by 5%. The military is going to go up by 3%. The remaining one-sixth of the government, about 16 to 17% of government, is what they looked at. So when Biden and McCarthy sat down to negotiate, they weren't negotiating over all the spending. They were negotiating over sort of toying with 16%. Well, you can eliminate the 16% and you don't come to balance. You have to look at numbers of the whole entire budget or you never get to balance. And this is why we've got such a, a real problem in our country. But I think if you talk to most Americans out there that are actually out there working, most of them uh, think government ought to be reduced dramatically in size and it should balance its budget. The conservatives were happy to get uh, the reduction in IRS funding, given the weaponization of the federal government, you know, concerns that would be used to really go after a really, you know, working class Americans, people with, you know, who, who have confusing, <laughs> all of us who have confusing uh, income sources, maybe you're working Uber, maybe you're working multiple jobs, the IRS would really go after you for that. So that seemed like a win. Then there was the work requirements on SNAP, although I saw some analysis suggesting that actually doing that it's going to make the program, more people will be eligible for it, and it, it doesn't actually help control spending mm. at all. It's, it seemed to me like a perfect metaphor for a lot of conservative priorities where you end up shooting yourselves in the foot. Yeah, in Washington, it's a, a tricky situation. You got to really look at the details. Even the titles of bills are typically the opposite of what they are. So Biden had an Inflation Reduction Act that caused inflation greatly exacerbated inflation. This one's called the Fiscally Responsible Act. It's fiscally irresponsible. On the IRS agents, well, there was an $80 billion increase and they've pared it back, I think, 1.2 billion. But that 1.2 billion may well be spent somewhere else because they hate to ever save any money. And I'm not so sure we really changed the trajectory of what's gonna happen with the IRS. On the work requirements, sure, they expanded the work requirements by going up to age 54 from 49. 
but they took some other people off and the Democrats are laughing and, and rubbing their hands together that the actual numbers of people on, uh, you know, required for work or on these programs actually is going to go up now. So actually the CBO scored this as an increase in cost. So everything they've sort of told us about this bill turned out not to be true. You know, they say, oh, well, there's a, this great 1% trigger that if Congress doesn't pass the appropriation bills, there'll be a 1% cut in the discretionary spending. Well, one, that's not a very big chunk of the government. It's about a third. But two, they can still cobble all the bills together and pass what's called an omnibus. These omnibuses are these 3,000-page bills that nobody reads. That's in all likelihood what still happens. You think they're going to, you know, all these people that want to explode the military spending are going to not pass something and get a 1% cut? No, it's pretty easy to do an omnibus. The omnibus is basically just, you know, patching it all together in one enormous bill and they pass it, you know, at midnight on December 24th, you know. So I suspect that's what will happen again. And I don't suspect anything good comes from this uh, this debt deal. And I think in two years when we're up and the debt has increased another $4 trillion, people are going to say, oh my goodness, how could anybody have supported this deal? And we'll have more with Senator Rand Paul in just a minute. And now Rising's interview with Senator Rand Paul continues. We just talked about the debt ceiling. Let's spend a little bit of time on the origins of COVID. I uh, want to get your reaction to news uh, from yesterday that uh, a Chinese so a scientist, the equivalent of the Chinese Dr. Fauci in, in the Chinese government's health services, said that you know all uh, possible origins for COVID should be on the table. The lab leak theory should be explored. You've been someone who has been so critical of, of how Dr. Fauci has framed COVID's origins and various requirements. Um, is is this what you know? What is your reaction to this news that even the repressive? <laughs> authoritarian Chinese government now admits that the lab leak theory is a possibility. What does that say about efforts to uh, censor and prevent that discussion that was done by our own health officials? You know, about a month ago, I spoke with the Chinese uh, representatives from their government here in Washington, and I asked them, you know, would you be willing to help us and be more frank, more forthright with an investigation of this lab leak? Not as an accusation that China is somehow evil, but that as an accu as a um, sort of an understanding that this was an accident, but also this kind of accident could happen in our country. We have at least 12 labs in our country, maybe more, that are doing this kind of research. So I think it was a big step for this scientist, former head of their CDC, uh, known by many people in scientific circles as being a truth teller. But it's difficult in a country with a very closed system for people to tell the truth. So I think it is a big step forward him indicating that uh, it at least should be under review and under investigation. So I'm still hopeful we'll have more. But people have to realize when they criticize the Chinese for covering this up and for obscuring the truth, our government's been complicit from the very beginning because we funded this. So really anything that was going on in China was jointly funded by the United States. And this is why from the very get-go, Anthony Fauci was involved in an elaborate cover-up. From, from January 31st, if not before, of 2020, there were emergency meetings where he was calling people virtually and emailing people all night long, organizing uh, a, a narrative. Because if the narrative became that this came from a lab that he had funded, basically he would share some responsibility, some culpability for the pandemic. And he sure the heck didn't want that. They didn't want it because it would threaten their source of income. And so really the wagons have circled. And really for the last two years, as I've been trying to get records out of the administration, uh, even though most of this happened under the previous administration, boy, they don't want anybody to know. And the one 
a grant that we did discover was leaked was something called the diffuse grant from DARPA, an agency within Defense Department. We did learn that they were asking for money to create a virus that looks very similar to what COVID-19 became. We don't have the smoking gun or that virus. They're probably never going to release that to us, but there's a lot of circumstantial information that's leading us to conclude that this did come up from the lab. Mm -hmm. Senator Paul, thank you so much for joining us. poll by Big Village's online caravan found that of the 425 Democrats polled, 59% chose President Joe Biden as their 2024 presidential nominee, but 19% chose Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Another 11% threw their support behind Marion Williamson. When the poll omitted the President Biden from the choices, roughly 44% of Democratic voters supported RFK Jr. and about 30% chose Marianne Williamson, and then another 28.5% said someone else when asked who should be the Democratic presidential nominee. That's another pretty good result for RFK Jr. and Marianne Williamson, That's no? fascinating. So I actually had a last-minute interview with Ro Khanna on my own podcast, Bad Faith, last night, and I asked him this question because of so many progressives are frustrated with how the debt ceiling mm -hmm. negotiations went. I said, at some point, is the way that Joe Biden has handled this or Democratic leadership handled this disqualifying and more evidence that you should be open to these challengers to Joe Biden? And what he said to me was, if there are more polls, multiple credible polls that come out that show a substantial number of voters actually have interest in these alternative candidates, then yes, I, I'm more open to the idea that there should be debates and that Joe Biden should be crowned the nominee by the, by the DNC. Here we go. This, this is yet another poll. It's unclear how many polls it's going to take for Democrats to start to take these candidates seriously. But when you compare the polling numbers of RFK Jr. and Marianne Williamson to almost anybody on the right side of the aisle who are competing against Donald Trump yeah. as the front runner, they are blowing them Absolutely. out of the water. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, the Republican contest, I'm sorry, I've said this a number of times, people don't like it, but it's true. It's a contest between Trump and DeSantis. Mm -hmm. No one else has a chance. That includes Mike Pence, who's set to get into the race soon. Mm -hmm. um, that includes Chris Christie. Chris Christie. Who's <laughs> not getting in Chris there. Uh, <laughs> going to make such a. Such, he's going to make a huge splash. Uh, that, I didn't even mean it like that. Uh, Tim Scott, Nikki Haley. No, it's DeSantis or Trump. You're absolutely right. On the, then on the Democratic side, people act like it, it's a lock for Joe Biden. And yes, he's he's very likely to get the nomination, in part because there's just he he benefits from the DNC totally ignoring these other two candidates who are polling just as well or better than people who are being taken seriously on the conservative side by conservative media. Conservative media is is more interested, and conservative voters are more interested in hearing from a variety of perspectives. Um, they're they're not. Uh, no one is, is working at this juncture to unite Trump again without an actual fight. Yeah. You, you can't say that they're all lying and saying, nope, sorry, it's Trump's thing. We're not going to listen to anybody else. You can't accuse the right of doing that. There are certainly people, uh, constituents who prefer Trump and very much want it to be him again, but he's going to have to fight for it mm -hmm. against at least one very credible challenger and then a number of other people. On the Democratic side... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it, wild. The, the, it's, it's black and white. Now, to be clear, there are you know Republicans who don't think that uh, Donald Trump should have a debate. They're shutting mm. down that conversation in a similar way over there. But when you look at how the media, including the liberal media, is treating Ron DeSantis as a credible challenger versus the other two. Now, I wanted to make sure I looked up these poll numbers so I don't get them wrong because I don't want to be um, called uh, milk with toast. <laughs> 
milk toast uh, by Donald Trump. But uh, this is from a CNN article from yesterday. Trump is the first choice of Republicans, 53% to DeSantis is 26%. Okay, so RFK Jr. has been steady at around 19, 20%. Marianne Williamson around uh, 9 to 11% in all of these polls. So combined, more than Ron DeSantis, but even RFK Jr. on his own, is far outflanking the Vivek Ramaswamy's of the world and the mm -hmm. Nikki Haley's of the world and the Tim Scott's of the world and the Mike Pence's right. of the world, whenever that um, And Vivek Ramaswamy is on, is wall-to-wall -wall coverage wall -wall. of him. He's on Fox constantly. He's on all sorts of conservative programming. Um, they're, they're, they're platforming him. And, he's, and liberal programming. <laughs> right, yeah. He's being platformed. Uh, <laughs> RFK, took down Don Lemon. RFK Jr. and Marianne, they make appearances. Marianne was on, uh, was on, on with Mehdi Hassan. Hassan. For a very tough interview that I think Marianne actually handled very well. Yeah. And if you look at the comments, by the way, on Twitter, when Mehdi said he was going to interview Marianne, he got dragged for it. His audience says, I can't believe you would talk to that woman. If you go to uh, YouTube, where the interview was posted and read the comments, uniformly glowing. Uh, Marianne's really saying, saying it how it is, yada, yada, yada. And I think that really reflects the difference between the kind of the political sphere, the media sphere that Mehdi Hassan lives in and these people who are making the choices about who to platform and who not right. to and what the general public thinks. Right. They're not on on a daily basis. They're not they're not talking to RFK Jr. with any we're approaching the frequency with which conservative media is talking to legitimate uh, or, or even much further, much less likely alternatives to Donald Trump. Or even Trump. RFK Jr. Conservative Are they media. They're talking about RFK Jr. more than yes, <laughs> for sure. Attention to RFK Jr. For sure. So at a certain point, I, I think you've got to listen to what people have to say. Yeah. If you are so confident that RFK Jr. or Marianne Williamson are so facially, plainly ridiculous that no one could take them seriously, then put them on the air, let them talk, and mm -hmm. let the chips fall where they may. But the choice to do what and we grill them on what they think. Right. Don't don't do a whole. Why are you running? Are you if running? Joe Biden is so likely, and you know, don't do you think Aren't you're a, a spoiler? spoiler? And and you know how with the audacity of you? How dare you? That that was a really revealing moment from the Mediasan interview, actually, because he says, and I believe this is true, from a policy perspective, I agree with everything that you're saying, Marianne. But yada yada yada, you're a spoiler. How can you mm -hmm. win? And Marianne replied, I think very astutely, this is a, a presidential primary. There can be no spoilers. <laughs> right. Quite obviously, right. Right. right? And if you g genuinely believe in everything that I believe, and you have these substantive criticisms of Joe Biden, why wouldn't you vote your principal in a primary election? And if you think that I can't win in a general, then you have to make the case for why I can't win in a general. But Joe Biden is a candidate where 70 plus percent of Democrats don't want him to even run. So if you're going to start having conversations about electability, you should start with the oldest president in history, who is deeply unpopular, who most of his own party doesn't want to run, being the choice of the Democratic Party. Yeah, it's... Uh... It's wild, and and all and the refusal to have debates, uh, the, the rigging of the whole system for Joe Biden is just um, is just it, it's something James Vanderbeek has taken notice of. We uh, we talked about that yesterday on the show, um, and and that's been covered a lot on conservative media. Like even from a tactical standpoint, do you want to give? The op opposition, media opposition, activists, you know, political actors on, on the right, the ammunition of just mocking your candidate for for the system being so rigged in his favor, like that doesn't seem. We talk about how that's sabotaging. How they they, they say that how having debates and all of that would would harm the candidate. 
Doesn't not doing that also harm the candidate by making him look weak and subjecting him to endless mockery and also, from people yeah. who, some of whom are Democratic, like James Vanderbeek? Yeah. Just to take one example, like yes. this is not losing the crucial James Vanderbeek vote <laughs> is not the end of the world. But he, but th there are so many people even within the Democratic coalition who are clearly expressing that same frustration. Yeah, a hundred percent. Not to mention that there's an entire state now that is pretty frustrated with uh, Joe Biden and the you know ostensible rigging of the Democratic primary. Uh, he is likely to have. To to forfeit New Hampshire in its entirety because of his choice to reorder the primary schedule to have a friendly state to him, South Carolina, go first. And this has opened up an amazing opportunity, at least in the eyes of the Marianne Williamson and RFK Jr. campaigns, to get on the map, as it were, and be forced to take seriously if the primary does, in fact, start. Those states start voting. New Hampshire can decide when it wants to hold its elections. The states have their own capacity to do this. And if it goes up on the board that Marianne Williamson, our RFK Jr., has fully won a state in a primary contest, I don't know how the, how the, the media is going to be able to flatly ignore that. Now, Bernie did win the first three contests back in 2020, and they made it into a big nothing burger, and they rushigated him after he won uh, Nevada, and they just patiently waited for South Carolina to vote, and they were able to give, I think, some millions of dollars, I don't want to misquote, but an, an incredible amount of earned uh, free media to Joe Biden because of that, and it ended up how it ended up. But still, I do think there are these cracks and opportunities for these insurgent candidates to make themselves known, and it's not clear to me that the mainstream media is doing themselves any favor by hoping that the Bernie blackout strategy is going to prevail. Mm. Well, glad we didn't get into any milk toast poll numbers there. <laughs> we avoided uh, being milk toast. Don't come for us. More rising right after this. Atlanta police arrested three people on Wednesday who helped organize a bail fund supporting anti-police protesters and activists aiming to halt construction of a law enforcement training center that has been dubbed Cop City. Now, Georgia State and Atlanta police raided the home of one of the organizers of the Atlanta Solidarity Fund, the bail fund in question, as part of ongoing efforts to crack down on the anti-Cop City movement. The Bureau confirmed it took in Marlon Scott Coutts, Savannah D. Peterson, and Adele McLean in, on charges of money laundering and charity fraud. Atlanta activists warned that the arrests are a gross overreach, promptly calling for civil liberties groups to look into the authorities' latest step to crush the Cop City protesters. Now, according to The Intercept, to date, 42 people are facing charges of state domestic terrorism in connection with the Stop Cop City movement. This is an incredible instance of authoritarian outreach. We rolled the video a little uh, while mm -hmm. ago. I'm sure we'll show it again. A SWAT team was sent in to investigate and arrest three activists. These are uh, people, I think some of them are lawyers who were arranging for a bail fund of protesters who have been arrested and themselves charged with domestic terrorism charges. This is an incredible escalation of making it illegal to protest in the United States of America. Remember, let's just back this up a little bit. They are building this facility known as Cop City, which has absolutely no local buy-in from anybody in the community. They keep holding these um, uh, uh, town halls where people can call in and comment to speak and comment. They had seven hours of hearings with zero people uh, talking in defense of it. They wrapped it and immediately said, okay, we're going ahead forward with the project. It's expensive and it's an environmental nightmare, which has le led to a number of people to be there, occupy the forest, and mm -hmm. try to prevent the construction from happening. In the context of that, the police shot a protester 
40 odd times, I believe it was, and killed him. They were alleging that he shot first and right. that they had to shoot him in self-defense. Subsequent autopsy reports de de determined that that was not the case, that this was a another police murder, which is exactly why people are protesting the this kind of facility in the, place, right. in the first place. Yes, this kind of authoritarian overreach by the police. And now they are criminalizing activists for creating a bail fund to bail out the people that they have charged with domestic terrorism because they're exercising their First Amendment rights, including people who are arrested and being charged in this way for simply distributing pamphlets and mailboxes, raising awareness about what's going on in Cop City. Yeah, it sounds absolutely terrible and uh, absolute violation of First Amendment rights to engage in protest, to distribute information. Um, SWAT teams are notoriously bad civil liberties organizations. Um, I, you know, I've said it's not a matter of, from my perspective, of like overall funding levels for police. It's like what is being funded? Are we funding? Are more investigate? Are we, you know, funding detectives so they can clear more murder investigations and check more rape kits and you know respond to calls of actual like domestic violence or something to patrol the streets in places where there are violence? Or are we giving cops expensive new toys to break down your door in the middle of the night and arrest you for something? That's not. That's not. You know, the police shouldn't be like a domestic military. In fact, I, I've heard um, uh, people argue that many of our, mili our military service members get better training and, and right. can be more, respective, uh, more respectful in foreign countries of other populations than in some places our own police are uh, the way that they, they treat us. Yes. Um, now, that's not saying training for police obviously is important, so I, you know, I support reallocating funds. I, I, I never want to give a government program more funding overall, but I would reallocate more funding to training. But so the opposition to the cop city thing specifically is because it is a training facility, but they're environmental. Can you tell me more about yeah, so, what the opposition is here? Because it, training police to be more respective of our rights would be a good thing. Right. Well, hypothetically, sure. sure. But the center is, one, expected to cost $90 million. Mm -hmm. It's expected to take up over 85 acres of, uh, you know, valuable, you know, forest land that has uh, environmental value. Um, it will include a mock city for burn building training and urban police training. So basically, some of the same kind of SWAT activities that we're watching here, how to control streets, how to move in in a military style, um, emergency vehicle operating course for emergency vehicle drivers, exactly the kinds of uh, interventions that we're watching in that tape are what this facility is intended to facilitate. Now, the other side is saying that it will boost morale, retention, and recruitment mm -hmm. for our public safety personnel. Well, if you're not even articulating as part of your argument that it's going to make the population safer, safer, this is for morale boosting for police officers, and you're spending $90 million on it and raising 85 acres of valuable forest and parkland in Atlanta, what are we even doing here? Moreover, at this point, I misspoke, they actually shot this protester 57 times, Manuel Tortuiga Esteban Pérez Terran killed him dead, and the autopsy report showed uh, that he had no gunpowder residue on his hands, which is an indicator that he had not actually fired a gun. There were wounds all over his entire body. You would expect that at mm -hmm. a certain point, cops are advocating a building of a facility and in the course of doing so end up murdering a member of the population they're supposed to be protecting and serving. That would stop this thing in its tracks. It has not done so. And moreover, The Intercept has done some really interesting reporting here. 
they looked at a more detailed arrest warrant um, for the, the, with the, the SWAT team um, that enabled the SWAT team to go in and, and arrest these people for these alleged money laundering uh, charges. It, it talks about reimbursements um, from the nonprofit to one of the arrestees' personal PayPal accounts from minor expenses, including gasoline, forest cleanup, tote bags, COVID rapid test, media, yard signs, and other mis miscellaneous experience, uh, expenses. So even if you think that there's some inappropriate use of funds, which there's no evidence of at this point, um, to raise bail and to conduct their protest activities, you're sending in SWAT teams because people spent money on COVID <laughs> tests and pamphlets in the United States of America. A a local politicians have been devastatingly silent on this. The free speech movement, broadly speaking, which has members on the left and the right, there's been some criticism of conservatives for not raising this as mm -hmm. one of the most significant free speech violations of the year, if not for a longer period of time than that. It, the, the routine ratcheting up of criminal penalties for people who are engaged in protests, including a lot of environmental protests, is something everybody should be concerned about. There's an environmental protest that got a nine-year sentence for protesting at an oil pipeline last year. Crickets from the mainstream media about this sort of thing. And I think that what people are realizing is that with growing public unease— and a, and a feeling that the government is not responsive to the interests of the people. We're going to see more and more protests. America knows how effective protest movements have been in the past, and they're making sure that anyone who dares to stand up in the face of this kind of over, over authoritarian overreach doesn't see the light of day again, even for passing out pamphlets. Yeah, again, if you're, if you're very active on the free speech category of issues, you know, if, you're, if you spend a lot of time criticizing um, uh, uh, people in you know liberal circles for trying to criminalize misinformation, that kind of thing. You really ought to speak up more often. If, if you're not speaking up, you should speak up when the police are literally trying to prevent people yeah. from circulating pamphlets and protests. And these people, even if these charges they don't stick. They have the right stick, to protest even if you don't agree with the protests going on. Right. And, and even if these charges don't stick, they now have to hire more lawyers to get them out of this situation. Are they going to be able to raise funds for, for that kind of a legal defense? And this is the classic state intimidation mm -hmm. that especially poor working class protesters don't have the ability to fight back against. We saw people like Kyle Rittenhouse, rightly or wrongly, able to raise a million dollar bail fund. Was that something that was a SWAT team sent to the houses of the people who were raising money for him and his defense and for him to be released? They're, they're, when, when you see this kind of leveraging of state power, it gives you an indication of what's really a threat to the fundamental right. system. I, I mean, yeah, right. I mean, conservatives have, uh, you know, criticized, have complained about uh, how, like, for instance, the January 6th people have been arrested and SWAT involvement in some of those cases, right? That's one of what one of the whistleblowers was talking about. Um, so, but, but it's yeah. important, you know, to be principled about it and not just complain about it when it's only affecting your side as is yeah, sometimes Yeah, a man what's going just, on. I think it was just last week, uh, got a, the longest sentence of anybody uh, uh, charged in 1-6, maybe it was earlier this month or last month, uh, in the 1-6, uh, protests so far. Uh, he got 10 years, right, I, I saw believe that. it was. Yeah, well, that's one of the, uh, uh, one of the militia leaders um, who was charged with organizing it. We did, I, so right. I think we talked about it on a day you were out. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I'm very... Four, yeah, 14 years, I'm sorry. Yeah, because they're charging him with a kind of like conspiracy to organize it. Right. And I, I think there, to my mind, there is so little evidence that what happened was organized. 
Um, it was very spontaneous, and I absolutely support charging people who engaged in trespassing and property destruction with those charges. I, I, I do not think you should <laughs> behave the way they behaved. Absolutely for charging them and with what the statute suggests it should be with you know, the recommended sentence, but to you know lock people up for 10 or 15 years these over— are, These are murder uh, sentence lengths. Yeah, right. What they, I mean, what they organized was a protest. Right. 98 percent of what was going on was legitimate First Amendment activity. Um, and it, right, and in fact—I mean, you know, we're getting off this subject, so we don't have to dwell on this much longer. But right, what has been suggested is that one of the people who is actually compelling and urging uh, the crowd to commit crimes and, and to go in and do that thing was uh, was that Ray Epps character yeah. uh, who has become and look, a, a, one a, of them, a mainstream media darling. Sure, and look, one of them was Donald Trump as well. And it sure. doesn't sit right with me yeah. that there are people who are suffering significant penalties for, for following the lead of the president, of the then president of the United States, and believing that the election was actually stolen. It does feel like a a disproportionate, a kind of a, a, a yeah. poor focus here of where the harm actually lies and who, where the responsibility lies, and in a way that actually lowers our civil liberty rights across the board and sets precedents that are going to be destructive to one community or another uh, at a certain point going forward. So yeah, we're all in this one together. We'll continue to cover this Cop City story, and I'm more rising for you right after this. Former J.P. Morgan Chase executive Jess Staley states that he communicated with J.P. Morgan's current CEO, Jamie Dimon, about sex offender Jeffrey Epstein while he worked for the megabank, according to legal documents. This actually contradicts Dimon's claim that he and Staley never discussed Epstein. Dimon's statement came as part of his deposition from Friday in the U.S. Virgin Islands lawsuit against J.P. Morgan Chase. In New Wall Street Journal reporting, the outlet said that Staley's statements were in legal documents they viewed that have not yet been made public. In the paper, Staley reportedly said that Diamond communicated with Epstein when he, quote, was arrested in 2006 and in 2008 when Epstein pleaded guilty. Staley also said that Diamond communicated with him multiple times about whether to keep Epstein as a client up until 2012. Now, J.P. Morgan has rejected the claim that Diamond and Staley discussed Epstein. Quote, we believe this is false. There is no evidence any such communications ever occurred. Nothing in the voluminous number of documents reviewed and nothing in the nearly dozen depositions taken, including that of our own CEO. J.P. Morgan spokesperson Patricia Wexler told CNBC. Now, according to deposition transcripts obtained by The Washington Post, J.P. Morgan Chase kept Epstein as a client years after receiving warnings about his criminal activity. The deposition transcript from Mary Rhodes, who is the executive of the bank's asset and wealth management division, shows that she was, quote, made aware of Epstein's convictions for sexual offenses, his status as a high-risk sex offender, and public allegations uh, of abuse of minors and human trafficking. She, however, did not think it was her responsibility to remove him as a client, begin a search into his accounts, or take the news to more powerful people. Erodas later said in the deposition, quote, my responsibility is not to do something with every piece of news media that comes out on our client base. Hmm. All right. Is there a difference between every piece of news media that comes out and an obligation and to follow offender. up, just to follow up, not right. to say immediately he's out, but just to do any kind of yeah. investigation on whether or not, because this is what they're being, they're being um, uh, sued for, whether or not they were complicit in, in Jeffrey Epstein's sex crimes. Right. I take her point because we are now concerned about people getting cut out of the financial world, being deplatformed with 
you know, PayPal or mm -hmm. Venmo or uh, uh, banks Kanye? not working, Kanye, right? Not working with problematic people because of the views they've expressed. Doing that at the drop of the hat, like the extension of cancel culture into mm -hmm. other sectors. I totally take that point. Mm -hmm. And and you know. Innocent until proven guilty, due process is not just a legal concept, but like a, a general good way to operate in like civil society, enlightened society. But <laughs> he, he was accused of, these are crimes. This right. isn't just like problematic views or something right. he has. These are criminal matters, fin po potentially financial criminal matters that involve the bank. Yes. If they're holding the money, they could be liable. So you, you would want... Right, not just operating off every insinuation or rumor or news story, but you'd still have some responsibility to do something. Yeah, if, if, if there's a report that comes out on the front page of the New York Times that says, uh, Gambino prime, crime family head banks at J.P. Morgan has right. these number of right. accounts. I mean, there's an obligation at a certain point to figure out to the extent to which you are involved. The Gambino a, crime family, uh, My Brianna, apologize. A microaggression. <laughs> Oh, I can't, I can't work not, with this woman. Not all Italians. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, like that, that, is, that is what we're talking about here. And, and just to take a step back, this is the posture of the thing. So what we know already from uh, uh, document discovery is that Jess Staley, who was the chief executive of J.P. Morgan's private bank for years, had a very close relationship with Jeffrey Epstein. We've talked about this on the show before. They, they, talk, they chatted about what Disney princesses they like. Correct. That's the level of closeness. <laughs> Correct. And there's thousands and thousands of these emails. He described, um, Staley's described uh, his relationship with Epstein as a profound friendship, even when he was locked up. And think about the timeline here. Uh, Jamie Dimon took over as CEO of J.P. Morgan in 2005. So that's before Jeffrey Epstein's first convictions and the jail time that he spent, I think, in 2008, 2009, if I remember that correctly. Mm -hmm. So the idea that there is a complete veil of ignorance about what Jeffrey Epstein has historically been up to, I think, strains credulity, shall mm -hmm. we say. Now, that doesn't mean necessarily that he shouldn't be allowed to bank anywhere. Once he gets out, you serve your time, you do your crime, all of those kinds of things I completely agree with. But the the statements from um, the woman, um, Arodes, that there was no, she felt like there was no obligation to even investigate when there were subsequent claims that were being floated about by the media. Um, that that seems to be like it's going to be a big a big headache for J.P. Morgan. Right. It's also worth noting that there's a tension now between Jess Staley and his and culpability Jamie Dimon. and Jamie Dimon. Right, saying that we did talk about this. Jamie Dimon saying we didn't talk about right. this. Now, I mean, you know, we're we are talking about a long. This is a long time ago. Some of these things that uh, you know, in in fairness, there could be a general uh, genuine. Um, dispute over whether conversations that are, you know, almost 20 years ago actually happened. Sure. Um, there might not be documentation. Um, Staley could be trying to uh, uh, protect his, himself at this point by saying, oh, no, I raised all these issues, or I said that there was, or Jamie Dimon, or that could have been the case, and Jamie Dimon could be saying, no, that never happened to protect himself. Hard to say. I mean, look. What's but there's so much, they're so compromised. Yeah, it's, it's indisputable. Jess Daly's com compromise status is indisputable at yeah, this point. Yeah. So I think it really is about trying to put some wall up between the CEO and this guy, Jess Daly. And so now you have to ask yourself the question whether we believe that Jess Daly, a man who was intimately, deeply friends with Jeffrey Epstein, never at any point 
given his senior position, said to the CEO mm -hmm. of J.P. Morgan anything about Jeffrey Epstein. I'll never discuss Jeffrey Epstein. I mean, I wouldn't be able to say that I've never discussed Jeffrey Epstein with any given person in my life just because of the nature of the man being right. in the news. So that just does seem like a very strong yeah. claim that uh, Jamie Dimon is making in this moment, and there seems to be obvious re illegal reasons why he would do Excuse so. Uh, Jeffrey Epstein, I don't know her. <laughs> New emails uh, obtained by Insider reportedly show that Epstein was invited to editorial meetings with former top editor of Scientific American magazine, Mariette DeKristna. Emails between Epstein and his employee, Leslie Groff, show her coordinating meetings with him and DeKristna for September of 2014. Again, these are years after he had already been incarcerated for sex offenses. Epstein attended editorial meetings on September 22nd and 29th in 2014. Again, just documenting his continued ability to be hugely involved and influential in meeting with important people and handling money for important people. We, you know, we've gone over the list. Noam Chomsky, yeah. Chris Rock, uh, that college president, um, right. uh, Branson, uh, the Trumps, the Clintons, everybody. And, yeah. So, and just here's a little bit more color from that Daily Mail piece we covered a little bit while back about the relationship between Staley and Epstein. And this, I think, further illustrates why Jamie Dimon wants no part of this relationship here. Mm -hmm. um, uh, this is this is from e e emails. Uh, so. On November 1st, 2009, while Epstein was still in prison for having sex with underage girls, Mr. Staley emailed him while staying on his Caribbean island. He wrote, so when all hell breaks loose and the world is crumbling, I will come here and be at peace. Presently, I'm in the hot tub with a glass of white wine. This is an amazing place, truly amazing. Next time we're here together, I owe you much, and I deeply appreciate our friendship. I have few so profound. Yeah, it's, it's gross. <laughs> Yeah, so Very I think that compromising. we're, we're going to continue to see the showdown between uh, Jess Staley and uh, Jamie Dimon in their deposition testimony, obviously. Uh, this as was we said, succession. Wouldn't they throw Jess Staley to the wolves by now? Wouldn't they say it's time to take a fall I, I, for the good of the— Well, the, the question is <laughs> what incentive Jess Staley has right. to do or not do that. So Jess Staley has yet to be deposed, and I think mm. there's a lot of— probably apprehension from some people about what he's actually going to say when his deposition comes out. Jamie Dimon's deposition was last Friday. That's how we know that he's denied having any communications with Staley about Jeffrey Epstein. This is now a, a he said, he said situation. And the other shoe will be dropping shortly. And of course, we'll be here to cover it for you right here on Rising. More after this. Project Veritas is suing its founder, James O'Keefe, according to the Daily Caller. The right-wing nonprofit which ousted O'Keefe earlier this year for allegedly misusing the organization's funds and also allegedly mistreating employees filed a lawsuit in a federal court in New York on Wednesday morning. The complaint alleges that O'Keefe failed at his duties as leader of Project Veritas, which caused significant damage. The organization also maintains that he must be held accountable for how he behaved toward employees, particularly female employees. Now, Rising has reached out to O'Keefe for comment. We have not heard back. He has been on the show in the past to discuss his sting operations. Um, obviously, James O'Keefe, Project Veritas, is known for doing these undercover videos um, with, with some government agents, with media companies. Um, he did it for CNN. He actually did it for Fox recently, mm. uh, post-Tucker departure, and then also for uh, Big Pharma, for Pfizer. Um, disclosures. Now, James O'Keefe is a very popular figure in conservative 
world and conservative mm. media. It's a lot of friends and allies. Um, he's a colorful character, mm -hmm. um, theatrical. I just saw him on Russell Brand singing a few notes of Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. I've actually seen him perform part of Oklahoma live before. What he's a, a treat. <laughs> he's, uh, he, he's, uh, so he, he has friends and allies. Um, he's done a lot of interesting work. I think uh, sometimes that work has been useful and has brought to us very interesting information. I think some of the Pfizer information was useful. Um, I also think his practices are so deceptive that sometimes it's not, you know, he, he'll pretend to be on a at a bar having drinks with an employee. The employee is, is a low-level person who's kind of blowing off steam mm -hmm. about their workplace. You know, you take me out, you, you, I'm sure you take you out for drinks, I'm sure what you'd have to say about me might not be, hopefully not Hardly what you really think. But, uh, but yeah, there's a kind of puffery, yeah. and exaggeration that people can to partake in when they're trying to impress somebody, right. impress a date, something like and that. Right, and sometimes it'll be like, yeah, he's talking to someone at CNN, for instance, saying, oh yeah, the whole company's biased against conservatives, it's like bombshell, but we kind of know that already, yeah. don't we? Sure. But I'm, you know, I'm not trying to, uh, 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 sting journalism can be, can be useful, and I'm not, you know, writing off mm -hmm. um, what he's done entirely. However, he is now having this acrimonious um, split dispute. It seems like there's been a lot of these in conservative media lately, with uh, Crowder and Fox, Crowder and the Daily Wire and mm -hmm. the Blaze and all of that. Um, yeah, in interesting times. Now, so the company side, they're saying that he misused funds, that he spent funds on like a private car for himself, right? other things, and also that he was very bullying. Yeah, so in February, uh, a group of Project Veritas employees signed a letter accusing O'Keefe, this is from an uh, article mm -hmm. in the Daily Beast, accusing O'Keefe of becoming a, quote, power drunk tyrant who was, quote, outright cruel to employees whose misdeeds ranged from eating an eight-month pregnant woman sandwich <laughs> to spending company funds on musical theater productions. He was placed on suspension in February and then soon thereafter announced the launch of a new Project mm -hmm. Veritas-like group called O'Keefe Media Group. And so the question now, and as I, as I watch this play out on social media, is who has the most loyalty from the fan base, the organization, the original organization right. that we founded and the work that they did, um, or James O'Keefe as an individual? I think it's no question, it's O'Keefe. Uh, O'Keefe was the organization. He's the only one with any degree of name recognition representing the organization. Um, he, he is the organization. Now, the organization is saying that when the board met, uh, you know, it, it seemed very uh, swift, his departure, and like they canned him. They're claiming now that when they met to discuss the situation, they didn't intend to fire him. They were just trying to come to an amicable resolution. That could be corporate speak, and they were absolutely trying to fire him. I have no idea. Mm -hmm. um, again, some of these workplace issues, we've talked about these are in other contexts. These are things that the board of a company um, no matter how much you might like the figure, has mm -hmm. to address. Just because, and just because someone is a good journalist or a good entertainer or mm -hmm. a good spokesperson for an, organiza an organization doesn't necessarily mean they're a good manager of people, um, you know, that kind of thing. And it, it just exposes these companies to liability. to liability. You can't look at what happened at Fox News and see that they were forced to settle for nearly three, right. you know, three quarters of a million dollars, uh, three quarters of a billion dollars, excuse me, in this settlement and not understand the financial decisions that are being made here sure. to have HR departments to oversee this kind of behavior. But also getting rid of your main guy in humiliating fashion can also <laughs> cause major financial problems for organizations. Sure. As I think in some in conservative media are learning, including I would think Project Veritas. I would, um, you know, if I was 
endeavoring to join a conservative media thing going on, I would put much more stock in whatever James O'Keefe is doing next rather than Project Veritas as it exists now, just because, again, he, he was the organization. Yeah, I, I, think that's, I think that's completely fair, but sometimes it just is what yeah. it is. You, you, Maybe it is what it is. There's, I mean, you, some, some of these dynamics are not uh, sustainable. Apparently, he is being accused of disparaging the board, of using uh, Project Veritas materials to start his new company, to skimming off Veritas's donor list while working for his new company. Um, you know, what, what, what do people expect Project Veritas to do in that sort of a situation. Right. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's not to mention the the, all yeah. of the HR things where apparently there yeah. were these disparaging comments, particularly toward female staffers on social media and in person. You don't have to like it, but companies, cor corporations, organizations have to be run with a certain degree of HR considerations, or they're going to get sued out of existence by their own, by employees, by, it's, it's like, it's, it's totally untenable to have a complete free-for-all workplace. Yeah, and, and again, it's anymore. not just the HR staff. It yeah. is this, you know, skimming of resources, misappropriation of funds, again, right. those All kinds alleged, of things. You know, we don't know exactly this lawsuit could be, it could turn out to be not um, well-founded or well-sourced. It could be, you know, they're sour grapes and they're trying to get one up on him. Um, I don't know. Yeah, it, it could be. It's, it sounds like you're skeptical. I mean, I, I'm no, I'm not. It's, uh, well, uh, I, I, don't, I don't know. I, I'm not. <laughs> I wouldn't say I'm skeptical that uh, all of these allegations are no. False I'm, I'm not. Or... I'm not skeptical of that. Um, there could very well be wrongdoing on both sides in terms of his exit and whether. Like, I don't necessarily believe that they didn't. So, so this reminds me a little bit of this Kaylee McEnany situation mm -hmm. where she misreads a poll number, arguably, and Donald Trump goes, you know, full- Milk toast. <laughs> full milk toast. Full on, like, calling her out, criticizing her, being antagonistic to her for what seems to be an honest mistake by someone who's been very supportive of him, who literally worked for him and has been an ally of his uh, throughout this process. Mm -hmm. Some people have defended uh, McEnany, including Candace Owens. I saw her on Twitter yesterday saying, you know, whatever you feel about Trump, this is uh, a, an own goal. There's no reason for him to come out this strongly against Kayleigh McEnany. He could have simply corrected her and moved on. Why lose an ally? Mm -hmm. This says something about how disloyal he is to even people he likes. And other people were saying, no, Candace Owens, you're wrong, and defending Trump no matter what. And it does seem to be to raise another one of these situations where, especially on the right, it seems there doesn't seem to be When a figure is really, really liked, there is mm -hmm. a lot of leeway given to their personal behavior. Oh, 100%. And, and there doesn't seem to be any space to say, hey, I like Trump, I like James O'Keefe, but they did the wrong thing here in this instance and they should apologize. It seems to be a very all or nothing world where even someone like Candace Owens is being dragged by people on the internet for saying what seems to be kind of obvious, like you can like Trump, but he should probably not act like this going forward. And anyone who does like Trump, Candace Owens was saying, should advise him that this is not a good look and it's, it's hurting his chances for, to achieve his bigger goals here. Right, the people who think what you just said, that our beloved figures, people we really like, are not immune from criticism and they can make blunders and we should call those out even right. if we still like the person. People who feel that way are much quieter <laughs> than people yeah. who say, no, we must defend our guy at all costs. Yeah. How dare you? Yeah. So.
All right, well, we'll see how this one plays out. We'll have more Rising for you right after this. CEO of The Daily Wire claims that Twitter canceled a deal with The Daily Wire to premiere Matt Walsh's What is a Woman documentary on the platform for free because of two instances of misgendering that occur during the course of the film. Now, according to Jeremy Boring, who is the co-founder of The Daily Wire, he went on the, a very interesting Twitter thread about this. He says that Twitter backed out of an agreement that it made with The Daily Wire after content moderators determined they would actually limit the reach of the film and label it as hateful conduct because of misgendering. Specifically, in the film, a father refer refers to his 14-year-old um, biological daughter, I believe, as a her, and then a story owner uses the wrong pronoun in a confrontation with a trans person. The Daily Wire reminded Twitter that they removed misgendering uh, from their policy as something that they'll take action against. And then, again, this is according to Jeremy Boring's telling. Twitter clarified that they only removed misgendering from their policy because they didn't need to be specific, but they still consider the act of misgendering covered under their general policy against abuse and harassment. They then gave the outlet the opportunity to edit the film in order to comply. The Daily Wire says, no way, Jose, on that. Uh, this is very interesting. And uh, Jeremy Boring and Matt Walsh and, and Ben Shapiro are very, uh, I think understandably upset because let's be real specific about what and, and again I haven't heard Twitter's side of this so this is all from their perspective mm -hmm. but you know these are people who are not anti-Twitter or anti-Elon Musk at all oh. they were just moving all their content there so what they said their, their videos are going to appear there so I so I, I'm I think we could take what they're saying with the like they're not going going to go out of their way to be uncharitable to Twitter they're saying that Twitter was going to limit the reach the distribution of the film just being published on Twitter because of misgendering that occurs during the film. And I think this is a pretty, um, this is not a great application, even if there is a policy, even if Twitter's position is you can't just like abusively, you know, go out and start using the wrong pronoun at someone in a, like a proactive or spamming, hateful fashion. I can understand why they, you know, if you just keep like replying to Caitlyn Jenner, like you're a dude, you're a dude, you're a dude, they're going to take action against that. I, I understand that. This is a film that already exists, mm -hmm. and you know within the film, this is kind of like this is getting close to the territory where like there are there's like a racial slur in a book or something because sure. it's a can't, historical can't context. Play Gone with the Wind or right? Isn't this uh, kind of like at that? Tiffany's right. because of the Andy Rooney? Right, like this happened. Yeah. I mean, in the documentary, someone it's not even it's not the Daily Wire person who, who's doing it. It's some third. It's somebody interviewed or or portrayed in the course of the film. Like that's a perspective, legitimate perspective. Would they take action against a film that was like pro that was uh, from a liberal perspective as progressive? It was it was making all the arguments that trans people. Wanted to make and depicted misgendering um, from, but from the perspective of calling it out. Right. Would they censor that? Like this is kind of crazy. It, it's very unclear what the policy is. But the part of this that is even more interesting to go me ahead, go go off, Brianna. I know where you're going to go with this. New Twitter, old rules. Yeah. And again, this is not, I'm not coming from the perspective of someone who didn't want Musk to take over and was out to get him from the from the get go. But he 
made very specific claims about the changes he was going to make to Twitter. This, this was the reason why he was buying Twitter and spending $44 billion of his own money. It's because he had an objection to these kinds of rules. And now we're seeing, if, if what the Daily Caller people are saying is true, that they have not actually changed any of the, the policy on misgendering, that they chose to remove it explicitly from their policy so that they have, could say to conservatives, oh, look, we're making these changes. This is no longer the policy. But behind the scenes, still operating in the exact same way, which maybe is fine. Maybe it is the case mm -hmm. that corporations make these kind of decisions because they're corporations and they need to make money. Advertisers have demands and they all bend the knee. But that being the case, can Elon Musk continue to hold himself out as this courageous person who stands up in the face of censorship and does the right thing if he bends the knee to uh, these uh, old old guard policies, if he bends the knees to advertisers, if he bends the knee to Turkey, if he bends the knee to India, if he bends the e e knee to the EU, per the segment we are talking about earlier today. Right. Maybe it's okay. You're no worse than anybody else. I'm not trying to pile on to you. But can you be described as the uh, overseer of the freest place on the internet as he was characterized on the Ron DeSantis uh, campaign launch on Twitter? If, in fact, you are operating the site substantially in the same way as the people who came before you. And I think this choice, unlike some of those other things which you mentioned, this is being freely chosen by Twitter. Right. Not, no, no Turkish government said, right. hey, you can't, we're going to hurt you right. if you post this. Um, this is this is freely chosen by Twitter, and honestly, it's pretty close to the exact thing that allegedly is is what inspired Elon Musk to acquire Twitter in the first place. Is that he didn't like that uh, they had taken action against the Babylon Bee, that which is a satire from a conservative Christian perspective website that had engaged in misgendering, mm -hmm. and they I think they suspended the entire account of the Babylon Bee, mm. and Elon Musk uh, was was really perturbed by that. Mm -hmm. That was he's been and in, I think he did a he did a podcast or some kind of video with the Babylon Bee that was released like yesterday, mm. where they're all kind of celebrating the new free speech regime, the new. Um, and, and so I saw the Babylon Beat guy talking about this Daily Wire case, and, and he, he seems <laughs> pretty disappointed, to say the least. So yeah, look, look, Elon can't, I, on this one, he really can't have it both ways. Um, if this, this, is, this is so close to just, um, to just, you know, taking books out of the Amazon store or whatever because they have bad words in them. Um, it's not. It's not free speech. It, it's just not free yeah. speech. Yeah, I mean, the irony was: look, even when Jack, his company, but it's not free speech. Sure. When Jack was CEO, the irony is that so many trans people and activists and allies were mad at Jack because they felt like he wasn't doing enough to to censor bullies and to take care of harassment. And I'm sure if I searched for various anti-trans language right now on Twitter, I would find a lot of it. And if I did this a year or two ago, I would also find a lot of it. And, and so at the end of the day, mm -hmm. what this feels like is personal grievances, legitimate or otherwise, being elevated unnecessarily because of the platform that Elon Musk has as the richest person in the world or various activists have. Everybody, everybody feels like the world is not exactly the way that they would design it. Everybody does. And we are making really broad claims about sometimes what this means about free speech and da, 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 when it's not actually about that. Like, there are really big free speech issues 
happening in the world right now. There is a SWAT team that just arrested a bunch of protesters in Atlanta for handing out pamphlets and raising a bail fund. That, these are significant issues, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't be concerned about some of the constraints that have been put on social media. I do think that these disinformation task forces that have no transparency as to their metrics and that are very politicized mm -hmm. are a big problem. I'm not saying any of that isn't a problem. But some of the core goals that were articulated by Elon Musk and some of the other conservatives, particularly in this space, and the, and the liberals who were mad about this stuff, too, are very subjective claims that have to do with their personal feelings. People have made the argument that Elon Musk used to tweet happy pride and everyone is welcome to buy a Tesla. And there was some shift that happened around the time that his partner left him and started dating a trans person. And maybe that, who knows what is motivating the, these kinds of feelings. But not everything that is bothering you in your I think personal it was life. His proximity to one of his children's school system. That's, uh, that's also a theory that's been floated. And you, yeah. he can have that kind of a personal problem. Yeah. But making this into this global free speech fight and claiming the mantle of a vanguard of free speech rights, rights and interests yeah. when you're really just pursuing your own petty claims is not the move. Uh, should mention also that you know this comes in the wake of his announcement that Linda Yaccarino would be the new CEO of Twitter. There were a lot of conservative, conservatives expressing concern about her given her kind of mainstream background, some World Economic Forum connections, um, mm -hmm. that sort of thing there. So, so if you were worried, you're probably feeling pretty vindicated in your yeah. worry right now whether she actually has anything to do with this, we don't know. And maybe, you know, maybe Elon will appear on Twitter. I'm <laughs> sure he's he's seen it by now. He's not he's not very he's not away from the platform for very long. <laughs> he might reply and go looking into this, what is this? And yeah. reverse it. I don't yeah. know. But uh, for the moment it seems very sus. <laughs> we'll have more rising right after this. In new reporting from Twitter Files author Michael Schellenberger, he writes that last week, the European Union declared it would punish Twitter from withdrawing from its, quote, supposedly voluntary censorship laws. European Commissioner for Internal Market of the EU, Thierry Breton, said, you can run, but you can't hide. Beyond voluntary commitments, fighting disinformation will be a legal obligation under the Digital Services Act as of August 25th. Hmm. Our teams will be ready for enforcement. Michael Schellenberger is with us now to discuss how the governments of the world are impacting the free speech question. Michael, thank you so much for joining us. Good to be with you. So, you know, what is going on with our European counterparts? We, uh, Brianna and I have talked a lot about how uh, you know, the, the Europe obviously doesn't have the First Amendment, has somewhat more uh, freedom, paradoxically, for, on its government's part to make different choices with respect to speech and privacy, and then also to police misinformation and do things like that to an extent that um, U.S. government officials can only, you know, kind of indirectly push companies to make those decisions. They can't, you know, commit them under the force of law, although, you know, one could argue it eventually ends up having the same effect. Um, what should be, we be worried about here when it comes to European regulation of the tech space? Well, sure. I mean, I think what I think people don't realize in the United States yet, but what is happening around the world is that governments are cracking down on free speech. It's happening simultaneously in a number of countries. It's happening in, in Ireland, where the law would allow the police to go into people's homes and search their computers. And if they find materials they view as as hateful, 
uh, they would assume that those materials were for dissemination and they would be presumed guilty. In the UK, there's a so-called online safety bill, which is moving forward, which would allow the government um, to access encrypted private direct uh, messages. And then in Europe, they are close to implementing this Digital Services Act uh, laws that would allow a very significant, and we believe growing amount of censorship of users on social media. And as you, as I, as you read there, uh, they've threatened Twitter. Uh, Twitter pulled out of the so-called voluntary disinformation board. Uh, they are now saying that they are gonna make that uh, mandatory. They're gonna enforce the laws around it starting in August. But we also see crackdowns in places like Brazil, Australia, New Zealand, and as I note in that piece, uh, often to the applause of news media organizations that have a direct economic interest in shutting down their competitors, since much of the censorship is often aimed at alternative media. And I point out there that um, it's not wrong to point out that one of the motivations for this, uh, so this uh, the censorship industrial complex, because we've certainly looked at state security uh, institutions having an interest in censorship, uh, we've talked about uh, various uh, military and intelligence organizations having an interest, but also I think we've seen that uh, commercial media interests also have an interest in expanding censorship of their competitors and often on the behalf or at least in cooperation with major advertisers. Yeah, so we obviously have a, an American-centric idea of what speech rights should be, but the reality is that obviously other places in the world, whether it's the EU or uh, India or Turkey, have different standards. And recently, Twitter has been under scrutiny as to how it has engaged with those standards and whether it would risk being shut down entirely in those countries or um, succumb, kowtow in some way to what those more authoritarian speech standards are in those countries. Recently, I'm sure you're aware that Elon Musk got into a back and forth with a journalist, Matt Iglesias, who was pointing out that it's fine to go ahead and choose to still be in service in those countries and succumb to their more restricted free speech um, uh, requirements, but you are not then being necessarily a free speech absolutist. Uh, what do you make of that trade-off, and how do you expect Twitter to respond to the EU forcing these so-called voluntary restrictive speech uh, disinformation requirements onto the company? I think it's—well, I think the first thing is this is one of the most important and interesting stories in the world right now, which is what will Twitter do if and when the EU starts making uh, censorship demands on Twitter? Um, I think it's going to be very hard for Twitter and other social media companies not to comply and stay in those countries. Uh, they're in a position where they can literally cut off access to Twitter in Europe. And we talked about it before when I was on the show, but my preference, I think, would be that Twitter allow governments to cut off access to Twitter, um, which would mean that the citizens would have to use a VPN or virtual private network to basically get around their own country's restrictions, which, of course, itself may be illegal and is risky. Um, but I think that, uh, that that's sort of my own wishful feeling about it. I think that the reality is that these corporations, including Twitter, are going to um, ultimately need to comply with governments if they're going to operate there. And that's why I think ultimately what you have to have is a citizen's movement around the world, including in the United States, that instead of us responding defensively to other countries' restrictive free speech laws, including having speech censorship um, uh, agencies effectively, that we need something much more like the First Amendment around the world, where really there is no government agency regulating speech. It gets worked out in the courts. 
Um, what people have thought is correct. We have the freest speech in the United States of anywhere in the world. I think it's a big part of the reason why so many people want to come to the United States, since I think free speech is a fundamental human right. It's not just instrumental to democracy or capitalism. It's a part of what it means to be fully human. But I do think that really the onus is on us as citizens, particularly on us as journalists, and I think attorneys and policy advocates who are close to these issues to really build a global grassroots movement to fight against the censorship industrial complex. I've been thinking recently about how these various policies, you know, whether it's the European Union or elsewhere, can also probably in some indirect way benefit, even though they're harmful to companies like Twitter, they could, you know, in, in a very direct way, because I mean, ultimately they're regulations, and regulations can be easier to comply with by already big uh, companies, they can actually further entrench the dominant players in the tech space. Um, uh, Sam Altman, the AI guy, you know, was before Congress, U.S. Congress in recent weeks, talking about what regulations he thinks would be good. He got a really warm reception from both uh, people in both parties. And, you know, I'm worried about, uh, about having speech policies that, while they're you know, on the margins, harmful for a Twitter, a Facebook, or a Google, would be utterly crippling to someone who's trying to come along and compete with those companies and do something new in the uh, in the speech space. And uh, and and, and that, that will, I mean, and, and in fact, Facebook more than Twitter has gone along with some of the or has you know signaled openness to specific regulations in a U.S. context because they know those regulations would hurt Twitter as a smaller company more than Facebook. And I, I think that's going to be a fascinating dynamic to watch. Uh, as the European Union moves forward with more speech restrictions. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, Robbie. I mean, I think, look, we're dealing with, at this point, these are social media monopolies. They monopolize uh, the, a, a social media utility of a particular kind. Um, and we all can experience the difference of what those are between Facebook and Twitter, for example. I think it is very hard for new entrants. Uh, we do also know that Instagram is building a Twitter clone that it intends to launch this this summer, which appears to be a much more, um, I don't want to say serious, but aggressive and probably more well-funded launch than the launch of the Substack Twitter clone earlier this year. So I do think that, um, you know, I, my, I tend to view networks as having very powerful effects in part because of my work on electricity, and I know that network effects are real. But I also know that real world events happen that surprise us, including Elon Musk buying Twitter. Um, and you never know. I mean, it seems like these technologies are not done evolving. And so as they evolve, in particular with AI, we might still see some market disruption. But ultimately, I do think that the, you know, rather than sort of, you know, pleading to CEOs of social media companies, I mean, we should plead. Um, there's nothing wrong with that. But I do think ultimately we need to go to our governments and also establish a kind of culture and a politics that really celebrates free speech. I just think it's um, we see that the censorship that's coming from governments reflects a sort of self-censorship that we've seen coming from the culture of growing intolerance and a widening what psychologists call concept creep of what they think, what people think causes harm in the real world. So now people think, you know, causing offense online causes real world harm. And I do think that that's why I keep emphasizing you need some sort of global citizens movement that demands that governments um, allow maximal freedom to American free speech standards around the world, rather than us having to respond constantly to the Europeans or to the Turks or the Indians or anybody else making their demands um, on the speech rights of people online. Okay, I'm really interested in that idea and the question 
and, and the implications of that idea for the question of whether or not it is better or worse. Obviously, none of us own Twitter. This isn't our decision. But abstractly, is it better or worse for Elon Musk to say, okay, well, it's better for people to have access to some Twitter in a place like Turkey and get some of their views heard in the middle of an, an election or in India, let's say? Um, rather than shut the whole thing down. There is an argument that says, well, if you shut the whole thing down and people across Europe who are used to having access to Twitter and who really enjoy the app and feel connected globally because of the app are going to be more likely to foment a people's movement, a global people's movement, because they are feeling very dramatically what it means for their government to have these restrictions on disinformation or, or however they're characterizing it. Do you, do, do you have any thoughts about the perhaps negative consequences of saying, well, we're going to go ahead and bend the knee to whatever government standards there are because it's better at very least to have some Twitter there? Yeah, I mean, I think I think if I had to order my priorities, I would say I think it's better to resist the government's demands for censorship. I also recognize that they may not be completely realistic and that um, that uh, platforms are probably going to bend to the will of governments. You know, I am being censored on Facebook at this moment uh, for my views on the environment, which is very upsetting. And I believe I am in the right. I have no way to make appeal. I still publish on Facebook, but it's clear I can't go viral on Facebook. I do still like to publish there, but ultimately there needs to be transparency required on those platforms so that they have to show the ways in which they're stifling it because there's a certain level of crazy making when you can't see uh, the ways in which these platforms are stifling you. Um, but I do think that the broader issue remains the same, which is that ultimately we are free citizens governed by our governments. And even in countries where they're more authoritarian, like in Turkey, there um, are still possibilities to change the laws. And so I do think that our focus has to shift from a kind of intense focus that we've had, particularly after Elon Musk take over on the CEOs of these companies and their decisions. I really think we need to turn this conversation back to ourselves and recognize that we have an obligation to fight for these rights, which we've inherited for several hundred years, which have been a hard won, which have not been, which were not universal at first 250 years ago, but have been gradually won by various groups in these countries to really demand, and has to be a citizen's movement demanding it, that we do not view speech as um, in the whole harmful, only in various uh, special exceptions for it. We do not believe the government has a role in, in censoring it. And to the extent to which social medias need regulation, it's in the direction of more speech in the form of more transparency rather than more cooperation with governments or more just, restrictions. Just a quick question about that, though, Michael. It, isn't it the, the reason why they're calling this a voluntary law, it seems, which I think is, is not a, an accurate characterization, but the reason why they're doing that is because you can choose not to comply, but then there are a series of fines, and I think uh, Twitter's fine is calculated based on your percent of the market share, blah, 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 but Twitter's would be about uh, $500 million. Uh, what do you make of the world where, it's, where uh, an argument that says, just pay the fine, don't comply with the policy. Go forward in Europe. Is is that an, an an you know a good way to maintain your values and also continue to have access in these other parts of the world? Boy, it might be. That sounds like a lot of money to me. I mean, I think it, it's even it's even perhaps a lot of money for people that are worth two hundred billion dollars. Uh, but um, you know, it's it's hard to say. I mean, I think it'd be interesting to see if you could comply with the fines. My suspicion, though, is that the governments would just ramp up the fines until they complied. Mm. And so, ultimately, I just come back to, you know, look, this is just something where I think we have to get out of the role of pleading with the social media companies and in a role of taking power 
I did want to mention, by the way, that we are hosting a gathering June 22nd and 23rd in London. Uh, Russell Brand, Matt Taibbi, and I are taking the stage at Westminster Center um, on June 22nd, Thursday, June 22nd. All are invited. Uh, we expect to sell out audience to really build this global free speech movement, which you know we had long expected it would be led by ACLU and that the mainstream news media would be championing this. It's not worked out that way. In fact, in many cases, they're demanding the censorship. So I do think that what we're seeing here and what I'm suggesting at this moment is that this is the moment that we need to actually turn the focus and the responsibility back on ourselves as citizens to demand these rights promised to us by the constitutions of our governments, but also to advocate for them in countries that have never had a First Amendment, because ultimately we are a global internet media communications a network and the censorship that happens in other countries definitely um, affects us here in the United mm. States. Three excellent individuals. I'm sure that will be a terrific event. Michael, thanks so much. Good to be with you guys. this week, we discussed the peer-reviewed study published by the Cleveland Clinic that raised some questions about the efficacy of the COVID-19 vaccine, specifically whether they made you more likely to actually get COVID the more jabbed you had been. The study first published as a preprint, pre but the latest peer-reviewed study released in April finds the risk of COVID-19 also varied by the number of COVID-19 doses, uh, vaccine doses previously received. But the higher the number of vaccines previously received, the higher the risk of contracting COVID-19. Here to delve into the details of the study is Jacob Rich, a researcher at the Cleveland Clinic Learner Research Institute and a policy analyst at, Re at the Reason Foundation. Welcome, Jacob. Thanks for having me. So help us understand um, from a more scientific point of view what the study does and does not say. Well, the study specifically speaks to the um, XBB lineage, one of the most, like the most recent lineage within the study. And it really only speaks to two things. It only speaks to what happened among Cleveland Clinic employees who were the sample population in the study, and basically how various types of vaccines affect uh, the probability of catching COVID. It doesn't discuss the probability of mortality, and it doesn't discuss the probability of hospitalization only on whether people tested positive, and there's a lot of bias that can happen to that for all sorts of reasons. Right, so there was some conversation, uh, and actually the, I think the preprint uh, actually even addressed it, saying that, well, you might think people who got jabbed more often, uh, well, if it, if it also shows that they're more likely to get COVID, it's because people at a higher risk of catching COVID are the ones more likely to get jabbed a bunch of times because they're an elderly population. But then the preprint says, but actually this population was not an elderly population. You're saying it's actually population at Cleveland Clinic. Um, so, so how does that further complicate? I, I mean, I guess it could be the case that people working in a healthcare, in a health setting are more likely to contract COVID because they're going to come into contact with it more? Does that check? Do you see where I'm going with that? Exactly. So that's what we call mm. selection bias. So if we were looking at the general population, we would expect people who were immunocompromised, maybe older, people who are more susceptible to catching COVID-19 to be more likely to be vaccinated. That is less of an issue in this analysis because the average age is about 42 years old, right, right in the early 40s. So this is actually a relatively young age group that we're looking at. But the types of Cleveland Clinic employees greatly, um, they, they greatly differ. Like if you think about me, I don't see patients. I'm a researcher. I just do math all day. So the probability that I am exposed to COVID-19 
is incredibly low. And someone like me might be less likely to get vaccinated than a doctor or someone who actually mm. works in infectious diseases. So there are selection bias uh, issues that could still happen among this population, even though it's a young age group. So you're saying that because the people in higher risk situations at the Cleveland Clinic or more likely to want to protect themselves by getting more follow-up vaccines and uh, more doses, that they, that is perhaps why there's a correlation between the number perhaps. of vaccines you're getting and your likelihood of contracting COVID. Okay, so earlier you mentioned that this study is measuring the likelihood of contracting COVID, but not the risk, uh, the, any, any relationship between the vaccines and hospitalization or death. Can you unpack why that's an important distinction to make? Because if you think about young people, at least half of COVID-19 incidents are asymptomatic and the vast majority do not show up in tests. So there's a lot of noise with whether someone gets tested in the first place. And death is much more sure. And there were some major issues with the death data, especially earlier during the pandemic when the federal government gave incentives for hospitals to treat COVID. But it, yes, I mean, like testing is probably the least accurate way of looking at things, but it is incredibly interesting that the relationship isn't noisy. It is like zero at the lowest, one a little bit higher, then two, three, and then more than three. And it's a very predictive relationship. So I feel like something's happening there. It's just very hard to disentangle. Hmm. So obviously people are looking at this study and saying, you know, this if, if, if this vindicates um, th this would vindicate an approach of of thinking that vaccine is still very important for high risk individuals, elderly individuals for which there's been some good evidence otherwise that the vaccines are helping with severe disease and death if you fall into a particular category. But this study, this preprint might you know be giving pause to to people who are like well is it so important for otherwise healthy and younger people to get vaccinated over and over again or you know to require it of that group frankly the only real vaccine mandate that still exists that i can find in the us is actually on um, college students at certain campuses um, you know what what is your impression of the kind of policy implications of what we're seeing here I think the policy implications are most appropriate for the bivalent, because there, there are actually two parts of this, right? We are looking at the number of vaccines people received, regardless of vaccine type and their probability of contracting COVID. But then we are also comparing the previous vaccines to the new vaccines. And the new vaccines did not go through much FDA approval. They were not tested on the general population. It was just assumed that they were going to work. And the study shows that it they basically just don't work on one of the most recent forms of COVID. And I think that's actually the most major policy implication. The idea that the FDA can arbitrarily choose which uh, types of vaccines go out and not determine whether they're effective. And I, I, I don't understand why anyone would actually force someone to get a vaccine that wasn't shown to be effective. And I don't completely understand the arbitrary criteria of choosing which types of pharmaceuticals don't need to go through the entire FDA approval process, especially with a technology as new as mRNA. So are you saying that in the case that a vaccine actually was uh, vetted properly and was responsive to whatever strain was circulating, that you might think it is uh, 
kind of appropriate from a public health perspective to still require uh, young people on college campuses to be mandated to get vaccines? Does that seem to be tailored to um, public health outcomes given the lower incidence of hospitalization and death among younger people, generally speaking? Before the pandemic, if we, you would have asked me that question, I would have said there is like a theoretical world where vaccine mandates do make sense. But after seeing the government's response to all of this and just thinking about how people react to incentives, if a vaccine works and something is very dangerous, people are going to get vaccinated. It, I, I really think there is a personal motivation to do that. And during Alpha, the vaccine did show that there was major reductions in uh, the incidence of disease and mm. possibly deaths associated with the disease. But if you look at the, the mortality rate among young people, it was incredibly low. And if you look at the incidence or basically the prevalence of disease and whether young people would catch the disease, over half of the time, they didn't even show symptoms. And how, uh, how likely you are to spread it to others is actually very dependent on your symptoms. If you're just breathing normally, you're not throwing mucus and all of this uh, moisture into the air for other people to catch it. And maybe there's a slight probability that people would catch it from you still. It's really that symptomatic cases that are going to be the most likely to cause contraction. So I think I really don't think any sort of mandate is necessary. And then it actually puts the burden of proving that vaccines are effective back on the companies who actually have an incentive to make money from something that works, right? Hmm. Jacob, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Hunter Biden's attorneys have told the Department of Justice that if he's charged with owning a gun as a drug user, which is legal, they will argue that that law is unconstitutional under the Second Amendment. Less than a year ago, the Supreme Court handed down a precedent-changing ruling, putting many gun carry and ownership bans at risk. I, th I think this is very interesting. So he's ready to go to bat for the Second Amendment. Uh, will the, the NRA be filing an, uh, an amicus brief to support uh, his position that, uh, that he should be able to own a gun even if he's a drug user? That's not a—like, philosophically, I don't think that's a crazy argument at all to make. Yeah. I, I don't think most drugs, maybe all drugs, I don't think should be illegal anyway. So mm -hmm. I, I don't—I am not all about disenfranchising people may, uh, merely because they use drugs. Uh, yeah, I, also, I, using, <laughs> using drugs and operating a gun while on drugs are two different things. Absolutely. Right. So imagine—I mean, there are a lot of dangerous— tools in the world, and we say that you can't drive a car while right. on drugs, but, but you there's eat, no right. law against getting a license because you have a, a drug conviction right. in your past you, or anything like reckless that. Reckless driving is and should be illegal. Dri you know, driving in a state of of significant impairment, right. that should be something that causes you to suffer penalty because that's not okay. Um, just, you know, just using the drugs or drinking or whatever it is responsibly um, that should be fine. So yes, I, exactly. If, if, you, if you're doing it you know, while, <laughs> I don't know, wielding a gun on the sidewalk or something, then no, that should be improper. Yeah, and there's an inconsistency there. Uh, totally. Alcoholics can buy a gun, but drug mm -hmm. users can't buy a gun. 
weed users, right. even though it's legal in so many states now. People who abuse alcohol are certainly more likely to misuse firearms than people who are like on pod or something. Now, of course, um, you know, Hunter Biden's uh, struggle with addiction has- It was cocaine. It, it's much more than just, exactly. Well, whatever else. And there's been other things pictured in some of these videos yeah. that have been the subject of a lot of attention. But, you know, it's a, it's a very interesting posture here, and I would be very curious to see uh, how the Second Amendment community weighs in on this. Do you have any guesses? <laughs> what, what's the, what's the over-under on getting that amicus brief uh, from the NRA? I, I don't know, uh, frankly. Um, obviously, there's, you know, it's so—it's frustrating times because, you know, a decade or two or three ago, when we lived in times that weren't so just disgustingly partisan, mm -hmm. everything polarized and, and oriented around, you know, it, it, the NRA was a less—was an organization that was not— as explicitly Team R. The ACLU was an organization that was not as explicitly Team Team D. Yeah, um, yeah. You used to have issue organizations, and, and it, like it still happens to some degree, but issue org organizations used to be a lot more willing to, they were working with people on both sides because the ideas that the two sides had, the R's and the D's, weren't as rigidly crystallized and formed as they mm -hmm. are now. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, this is a world where the NRA was like operating its own kind of media division where its spokesperson was like just like was you know was bashing in the camera of the mainstream media's lies, like not specifically about gun issues, but mm -hmm. just because the media is against conservatives and they're on the conservative sure. side. So I think the answer to your question is probably no, and yeah. that's a, and that's a shame because uh, you know I used to say I was a supporter of I mean I didn't donate money to them or anything, but I, I supported the missions of both the ACLU and the NRA. Mm -hmm. And now um, I, I think a lot of issues, uh, a lot of organizations that were civil libertarian nature have become partisan in nature, and it's frustrating. Yeah, for sure. I mean, this, this is fascinating. So to keep in mind specifically the language on the form, when he bought the gun, the federal form asked him to avow that he was not, quote, an unlawful user of or addicted to any controlled substance. So there's two pieces there. So earlier I was like, well, what if, what if you use marijuana? And well, technically there's a world in which I guess, I don't know if it's a st legal on a state level or a federal level, since this is a federal form. Right. It's, but that's it's one not piece legal of it. Well, it's still a controlled substance on a federal right. form. So I which, mean, this is a huge problem in the discrepancy between how the federal government treats it and how state governments, I mean, there's a patchwork of responses, which I, I think is fine. I, I would decriminalize all drugs everywhere so all the time. Maybe, but I think states should, you know, take experiment with different policies. Yeah. But on the federal level, it's still control. Marijuana is on the same schedule so as anything else. So what if this ends else. up being a path, if they want to challenge the constitutionality of this restriction on the mm -hmm. federal form, what if they also end up challenging the Constitution, uh, challenging some of these um, federal drug laws, which, which Joe Biden said he was going to do a little something on, on during the campaign. He was pushed. Yeah, to, where's that? I mean, you talk about how, how Joe Biden has disappointed young people, students on the, the loan question. What about drugs? He when seems are to they going to have gonna... some weird personal hang up about yeah. legalizing marijuana? It's so overwhelmingly popular on a bipartisan basis. It would obviously help, mm -hmm. at least in this limited fashion, but potentially his son in this lawsuit. It would be very interesting to see if there was any wiggle room on that. But then the second part is addicted to any controlled substance. And that's, that's kind of an interesting one.
How do you measure I'm not an that? addict. I can quit any time. Exactly. Yeah. Is it that you've done a stint in rehab, um, that you've ad admitted that you, I mean, obviously Hunter Biden has talked about and admitted to having addiction problems. Mm -hmm. Is it that you are submit to a psychological assessment and they establish whether or not you're addicted at the time that you filled out the form, which could have been years in advance? I mean, this is, this is a tricky standard for a lot of reasons. Um, and it's remarkable that we're in a time where this is a public news story in an election season about the family member of the Democratic chosen nominee. And the Democrats are simultaneously saying, we absolutely shouldn't entertain any alternatives in the Democratic primary. Right. Uh, this also reminds me of, actually, I was on Fox, uh, Fox Business Channel last night talking about a variety of things, including um, uh, apparently, uh, the Heritage Foundation, the conservative organization, is involved in some, uh, is trying to get um, Prince Harry his immigration record papers because he's admitted in the interviews, in the book, in the interviews, mm -hmm. to some drug use. Mm -hmm. But in order to get a visa to come to the U.S., he had to attest that he's not on drugs. Mm -hmm. So... So while I appreciate that I don't think royal people should be treated differently than everyone else, and it remains the case that famous people, political scions, get out of drug involvement where, where ordinary folks have the books thrown at them mm -hmm. and it's totally hypocritical and unfair, I mean, again, I would solve this by we should decriminalize drug use. So I don't, like, I, I don't, I don't want to deport Harry over his <laughs> over whether he used drugs. It's like, so it's not, silly, yeah. and, and we only know and about honestly, it. And I don't want to put Andrew Biden in, in jail or prosecute him because he used yeah. drugs or was a drug addict um, and owned guns. Obviously, if he literally used a gun inappropriately while on drugs, that yeah. is a that should continue to be a crime. So this but is what from, we're interested. You know, we're, that's not the part of that's the salacious part of the Hunter Biden's right. part, but it's not the relevant part. So the. It's, this is all uh, according to the, the Gun Control Act of 1968. This is from a political piece. It prohibits unlawful drug users from possessing firearms. The Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms says this ban applies to people who have admitted to using illegal drugs in the 12 months before buying a gun. So that's an interesting wrinkle as well. It, do we think it's less of a uh, stripping of rights if it's time limited in that way. It's not that you can never have used drugs or never have been addicted to drugs, but just in the lead up to buying a gun, they want you to be not an addict. Yeah. Uh, and not not maybe a, a, a user of illegal drugs. It's, inter it's, inter yeah. it's interesting. Yeah, very interesting. Well, we'll continue to follow um, Hunter Biden's uh, quest to save the Second Amendment, I suppose. <laughs> Tomorrow on Rising, we will actually hand over the baton to Jessica Burbank and Amber Athey. Brianna and I will be back with you on Monday. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. I just ran into a listener listening to the podcast as in a podcast, to the show rather, in a podcast form yesterday when I was walking through DC, so I'm glad to hear exciting. that some of you are revealing yourselves That's very exciting. that format. We love meeting fans of the show <laughs> in the wild. Um, I do at least. I, I I do as well. Shout out to you, Eric. <laughs> All right. We will see you uh, next week and tune in tomorrow for the Jessica Burbank and uh, Amber Athey. Both be great. Take care. Bye-bye.